Hey, before we start, I'd like to give a shout out to Lara Velez for liking the Week in Doubt Facebook page. Also, there have been some developments since I started recording this unscripted episode, so you may hear me interrupt myself every now and then through the magic of editing with some updates. But anyway, on with the show. Hey everyone, I'm Phil Albertelli and this is The Week in Doubt, episode 211, almost said 2011. Uh, We'll see if I keep the show going that long, hopefully. I apologize if I sound a little extra stuffed up. I was uh, gutting a bathroom today. So that mixed with my usual allergy symptoms. And hey, uh, I know it's probably a little early in in the week for another episode, but I kind of felt the need to vent. And uh, I thought it would be a kind of good excuse to do an unscripted episode after just releasing that documentary on the Salem Witch Trials. Okay, here I am, back through the magic of editing as promised. I originally started recording this episode on Tuesday, but because I was working like a dog all week, I didn't get a chance to resume the editing process until now. It's a rainy Friday night here in New England. Actually, with uh, flash flood warnings for Bill Ricca, the next town over, whereas I mentioned in the Salem episode, uh, people had actually been, at least, I don't know how many, but someone had been accused of witchcraft in Bill Ricca. Woo, spooky. All right, now back to Phil from the past. As I said half-jokingly on Facebook, I thought that Salem episode was my magnum opus. I spent a lot of time researching it, and writing the script. I was fairly happy with it, as happy as a neurotic person like me can probably be with something. Um, Dare I say I was even proud of it. Then I realized that through some amazing brain glitch, as I described it, I inadvertently placed the Salem witch trials in the 1960s, and please no one steal that, that idea. I was thinking to myself today, that that would be a pretty cool mashup, like how they have the zombie version of Pride and Prejudice. I can have the Salem witch hunts in the 1960s, and like Cotton Mather can be playing bass for the Jimi Hendrix experience, and um, the girls can be freaking out because they're taking LSD. Um, spectral evidence. <laughs> I'm kind of joking, but that actually sounds cool. Don't steal my idea. Yeah, so hopefully you can tell that's not the case that I'm some raging moron who thinks that the Salem Witch Trials took place in the 20th century. If you listen to the rest of the episode, you can clearly see or hear that, except for the part where I briefly touch on the witch hunts in medieval Europe, the episode is in the context of 17th century New England. I think it was almost like this weird dyslexic moment uh, and I'm not trying to make light of dyslexia. Actually, one of my best friends suffers from dyslexia. But I've had times like that before where you feel like you're clearly translating the right set of numbers or words. Then you realize after the fact that somehow everything was garbled. Um I must have intended to write down 1692 and 1693 somehow reversed it to 1962 in 1963, and then I kind of put my brain on autopilot when I was reading the script, and uh, even listening back to it. I listened back to the damn episode like twice, but I think that was mostly for 
kind of quality control, making sure everything sounded right. There weren't any technical glitches. And uh, it just went right by me. But you should see my face. When I had to uh, work today, and I was up late for some reason last night, and it was like 2 in the morning. I was finally getting ready to go to bed. And just for the heck of it, I decided to, you know, just check on the YouTube version of the episode, see how everything looked, make sure there weren't any hiccups in the way it was playing back. So I fire up the YouTube version on my iPad, and the introduction starts playing, and then all of a sudden, clearly, I hear it as if for the first time, you know, through February 1962, uh, and I get, you know, I automatically start to feel dejected, through May 1962, Again, 1963, and you should have seen the look on my face. I wasn't standing in front of a mirror, but the emotion was so strong, and my I could feel my own body language. I'm pretty sure I knew what the look on my face was. Literally, my whole body just started to go slack. My jaw opened up, and my iPad started to slide out of my hands. Um, and at that moment, I shit you not, I almost considered closing up shop on the podcast. I've had some stupid mistakes recently, and I care so much about the podcast that it drives me absolutely nuts when I listen back and hear a mistake that somehow got by me during the editing process. And I was really proud of this episode. I spent so much time watching, just to explain how I do the documentary episodes. Um... I only do documentary episodes on subjects that I'm really fascinated by or passionate about. You know, otherwise, why would I bother? And so usually what I'll do is I'll go back and watch some documentaries that had affected me in the past that, you know, that had grabbed my attention. I'll watch some documentaries on the topic. Then I'll go online. I'll try to find some trustworthy online articles, maybe EDU sites, might even use something like an encyclopedia or Wikipedia just for, um, a, a, you know, a timeline or, or just for a, a starting point. And then once I've gathered enough information, I'll create an outline. I'll start to flesh out the outline. Then I put on my kind of like English comp hat and start actually trying to word everything in an interesting and informative way. You know, I, I try to convey all the information in a concise and compelling way that I think people will enjoy. And then, what you know, as I'm going, I'll kind of fact check myself. If something sounds like it might be a little iffy, or if I've heard perhaps competing or multiple accounts of an event or something like that. I'll go back and really try to fact check everything and try to go with which account seems the most reliable or which source seems the most reliable. So I put a lot of work into the documentary episodes and somehow that stupid mistake still got through. Uh, that episode on the witch trials, especially, I, w I, I mean, I gathered so much information you know, I was working on the thing during my lunch breaks, working on the thing during the uh, weekend. And I've probably never have had to go through that much information before for one of the uh, documentary episodes. And the funny thing is the documentary episodes, despite all the research that goes into them, usually end up 
being really uh, short. I think it's because rather than just talking off the cuff in this kind of meandering stream of consciousness way like I'm doing right now, uh, which can eat up time as you're kind of trying to uh, crystallize your thoughts and grasp for the right words as you're going. I mean, basically with the documentary episodes, I cut out all the dead wood, streamline everything, and just try to convey the necessary information. So ironically, despite all the work that goes into them, they end up being relatively short. And, uh, you know, it's a work night, so I probably shouldn't do this, but I'm going to have myself an Angry Orchard hard cider. And though they don't sponsor the show. All right, tough guy. Well, now it's Friday night, so... How about some generic rum and Coke? Well, generic rum and uh, brand name Coke. No, they don't sponsor the show either. But anyway, back to me and whatever the hell I was just talking about. So, uh, yeah, no, seriously, I, as, the, as I went slack and the iPad started to slip out of my hand, I actually contemplated closing up shop on the show, but... Then I'm like, well, what are you going to do, man? You love doing this. I mean, it's better to keep going with the show and have to issue some corrections here and there than to stop doing something you love, you know, because you're afraid of making mistakes or whatever, when mistakes are a part of life. As the cliche goes, I can't believe I'm about to say this. It's been said to me before, and I usually roll my eyes. But that's why pencils have erasers. You know, everyone makes uh, silly little mistakes, no matter what it is. And sometimes some big mistakes to keep everything in perspective. In fact, I think there was something in the news recently in my neck of the woods. Uh, somewhere in the, in the Boston area, uh, here in Massachusetts, a doctor, a surgeon recently not only took out the wrong kidney, well, it's probably a good thing he didn't take the wrong kidney out of the patient that needed the surgery, or they'd just be left with a, a, a bum kidney. Um, they, I think there are two people in the hospital with the same name, and they took, they removed a healthy kidney from a patient who wasn't even scheduled for kidney surgery. We've probably all heard stories about the wrong leg being amputated and things like that, which I think is why they do all these, uh, usually they do these pre-surgery precautions. They actually write on patients with markers, I think, and things like that. Um, so everyone, you know, makes mistakes. But I love doing the podcast and I don't plan on stopping. It's just really frustrating when you love doing something and you try your hardest to um, put forth something of quality and you try to well polish and refine things. And then you realize that something stupid made it by you during the editing process. But I don't think I'm going to do any news stories. I thought maybe I'd just have some fun kind of giving my thoughts on a more upbeat note, now that I'm kind of done flogging myself, you know, uh, give my thoughts on why I thought of, of some of the subject matter from that documentary I did on the Salem Witch Trials. And I forgot to uh, mention, there may still be one or two mistakes in there. Not factual errors, but rather the mangling of a couple of names. Uh, I, I was talking about cases of people being executed for witchcraft in colonial New England prior to the Salem Witch Trials. And I was talking uh, about the case specifically of someone named, of a woman named Alice Young. And 
I almost, for the, the sake of ease, referred to her as Alice, but I think she was more properly known as, and here's why I may have mangled the name. The name is spelled A-L-S-E. I almost pronounced it as Ailes, and that makes me think of Roger Ailes, which creeps me out. And, and I was thinking, I'm like, this name has a real kind of Anglo-Saxon feel to it, maybe even like a Scandinavian thing. And I'm like, as the Puritans were English settlers, I was thinking, yeah, but it probably is an Anglo-Saxon name. And then I was reading up how it's related to a whole bunch of other names, like Alyssa, Elise, um, a, a whole slew of names in in that family. And they share an etymological root in common where, and this is funny, this is how deeply I was researching things. I was actually going to sites that have lists of, uh, you know, baby names, trying to find out the meaning and the proper pronunciation. Yeah, but actually here, I just pulled up a page. It gets a little confusing because many of these related names, supposedly it claims they have both a Greek and a German etymological root. And A-L-S-E, they're saying is German for noble and Greek for truth. And it might seem weird that an English Puritan settler might have a quote-unquote Greek name or, or a name that might partially have a Greek etymological root, but I certainly don't think it's out of the question that certain names, perhaps, and uh, certain aspects of the Anglo-Saxon language would be influenced by the classical world, Greek, Latin, etc., so I was searching for this name all over the internet, trying to find out the pronunciation and, and where it comes from. And a lot of places were saying, like I said, it has a Greek root, Greek meaning truth or something like that. But then they're also saying German. But I was thinking, oh, I almost pronounced, like I said, I almost pronounced it Ailes. But since it may be of Greek origin, at least partially, I thought maybe the E at the end would be long. So I ended up going with Alsi, which is probably a complete verbal abomination. Uh, it, it most Who knows? Maybe it was Alsa or maybe it was Als or Als, which almost kind of sounds like Alice. But yeah, so I don't think that's a big one. And here's some other related names. Adala, Adelise, Adelicia, Elise, Aletta, Alexis, Allison with multiple spellings, Alice, Alicia. Okay, I'm back through the magic of editing again. And yesterday, I was still obsessing over this. Man, I'm crazy. Um, and I did another search for the name on my phone during my lunch break. And I don't know if it was related to Ancestry.com. It might have been, I forget. But it was at some genealogy site. And they had this kind of search tool that offers you the proper pronunciations for uh, both last names and first names. And they actually had A-L-S-E. And it turns out, at least according to this site, that it's supposed to be pronounced else. So uh, soft S, the E is silent. So I probably should have went with my gut, but I overthought things and ended up going with some totally convoluted, misguided pronunciation. And just so you guys don't think I'm pulling stuff out of you know where, um, I found a little bit online explaining how a name like Alice or Ailes uh, could have both a German and a Greek root. 
as kind of strange as that sounds because we think of the two cultures as being, you know, vastly different. But it says from the old French, and I'm probably going to butcher another name here, Alice, uh, A-A-L-I-S, a short form of the Germanic name Aldehydus or something like that, which was composed of the elements Adel, meaning noble, and Hyde, meaning type. Alice became popular in both France and Britain in the 12th century. Alice derives from the ancient Greek word, it looks like Althea or something like that, which means truth. And that's pretty much what I was getting from these different baby name sites and from, uh, I think, Wikipedia. And that still sounds somewhat contradictory because even there, they're giving you the etymological breakdown of the name and how it comes from two separate German words, I think they were saying. But then they're also saying that it comes from Greek or has a Greek root. And sometimes I almost feel like when you try to search the etymology of a word or a name, you never really get a definite answer. A, a lot of it seems like guesswork and that sometimes they offer multiple roots. And I think this is now officially the weirdest podcast in the world. Uh, somehow, you know, I embarked on an unscripted episode and uh, ended up talking about baby names and the etymological root of the name Alice. Um, very strange, but there you have it. A dark peek, perhaps, into the meandering workings of my mind. But anyway, back to me again. So I noticed while researching that episode that a lot of the, well, at least a few of the people involved seem to be referred to by multiple names. Maybe part of it is either because it, you know, it has to do with the use of nicknames, like for instance, Elizabeth Paris was also known as Betty, which makes sense. In other cases, maybe it has to do with old English pronunciations versus modern pronunciations. But one name in particular really gave me kind of a chuckle, even though it's associated with a really sad story. I recounted the story about how Sarah Good's four-year-old daughter uh, was also accused of witchcraft and, and was jailed alongside her mother. She's often referred to as Dorothy Good. But her name is also on record as Dorcas. Yes, Dorcas, like people used to say on the playground, you know, when I was growing up. But yeah, yeah, I can remember being a kid, used to call, well, not me, I don't think I went around calling people a dork. But um, people used to say dork, Dorcas, and I think dork was also slang for the male privy member. But yeah, the little girl's name was Dorcas. Different spelling than the slang word. The, the name is spelled D-O-R-C-A-S, if I remember correctly. And no, this isn't another uh, laughing in disbelief moment of gullibility. Uh, uh, for the YouTube viewers, I'll actually put some screenshots up there. But you know you're starting out on the wrong foot in life when you're arrested for witchcraft at the age of four, and on top of it, you're named Dorcas. But I'm kidding. Dorcas was probably a perfectly fine name. Uh, but it seems so alien, I think, to us that, like, <laughs> it doesn't sound very feminine that, like, a, a, a young girl would be named Dorcas. But here's a bit on the etymology of the slang word, uh, dork or dorcas. Not saying that the name and the slang word necessarily share a common <laughs> etymology or etymological root, but pronounced the same. U.S. 1960s, 
sense of quote-unquote silly person, presumably from earlier use as a bowdlerization of dick, quote-unquote penis, in student slang, particularly Midwest. A folk etymology exists claiming the term comes from a South American term for whale penis, but this has been debunked as a hoax. Alternative etymology derives from dialectical Norwegian dorg, D-O-R-G, meaning a quote-unquote mass heap, a heavy slovenly woman. But actually it looks like the name Dorcas comes from Greek as well, and actually probably comes from the name of a biblical figure. Um, there's some site called sheknows.com slash baby names, but it's the first result that comes up when you uh, Google the words Dorcas and name. It says, the name Dorcas is a Greek baby name. In Greek, the meaning of the name Dorcas is gazelle, famous bearer. The New Testament, Dorcas, who abounded in good deeds and gifts of mercy, was a charitable woman raised from the dead by St. Peter. So, very interesting in a way, but once again, weirdest podcast ever. But yeah, the other name I mangled was that of a judge. Um, his last name is spelled S-E-W-A-L-L. I think, uh, so who knows if it's Sewell or Sewell or Sewell. Uh, I think I pronounced it Seawall, like a wall at the sea, which I think sounds kind of cool. And, and I might actually change my name to Philip J. Seawall. I don't know what the J stands for. We'll figure it out. But, uh, but anyway, yeah, so I probably uh, butchered his name as well. Um, post-mortem apologies, good sir. Back through the magic of editing again, and I did some hunting around, and I believe it is pronounced Sewell, as in, you know, rhymes with jewel. So there you go. Yeah, but I mentioned I wanted to talk about some of the subject matter, things I found interesting. And, and one of the things that stuck with me was Dorcas Good. So we talked about that. And another thing that elicited a juvenile chuckle from me was the whole witch cake thing, where in order to test if someone's a witch, there was this folk practice of baking a, a little cake with rye flour and uh, added to it. I don't know if, if it's put in the mixing bowl or it's added afterwards, but one of the ingredients is the, um, the urine of the afflicted. And then it's fed to a dog. And it's just the weirdest thing ever. You got this, I almost said urinal cake, which is a thing. You got this, uh, this weird urine cake and then you're feeding it to a dog. And the idea, as I said in the do documentary, is that there was this weird, almost what sounds to us like a, pseudo, a pseudoscientific idea that witches afflicted people through malignant particles. And it was thought that the particles would remain in, in behind in the victim's urine. And so when the dog ate the cake, I guess the particles would be destroyed or whatever, causing the witch to cry out in pain, revealing herself. But I thought that was, uh, you know, not only did it elicit a chuckle from me, but, you know, I just love weird, lurid bits of history. I, I'm kind of attracted to the darker or more grim aspects of uh, history. So the story of the witch cake kind of stuck with me. I have to uh, stop to say that for a minute, uh, a quick fleeting second, I thought that uh, my good friend Crocoduck had discovered yet another mistake. He commented on the YouTube version and he was saying that 
and by the way, I took down the original YouTube version. That's another thing. Right after, when in that moment of despair, <laughs> when the, the iPad started to slip out of my hands or hand, and I realized the mistake I had made, instead of going to bed, I automatically rushed to the computer, shut off all the ambient noise in the room so I could record again, went back and re-recorded the bit where I'm talking about the date range of the uh, Salem Witch Trials in the introduction. Re-recorded that, re-uploaded the podcast to Podbean, and replaced the audio in the YouTube version and re-uploaded the YouTube version. So if you're a faithful listener of the podcast and you already listened to the version with the mistake in it, and you want to hear, for some reason, probably not necessary, the version that's been corrected, uh, you can just delete the podcast from your device and you should be able to download it again and the corrected version should come through the feed. Back through the magic of editing, I should clarify, you don't have to delete the whole podcast. That's my bad. I probably could have expressed myself a little better. So you don't have to delete the entire podcast, just the episode in question, re-download it and that way you should get the newest version. All right. Yeah, so you're not losing your mind if you suddenly realize that something's different with the YouTube or the uh, Podbean version, it's because I corrected and re-uploaded the uh, episode. There's dedication for you. It's funny, my uh, good friend and listener, Russ Ray, um, we're always talking via the uh, Weekend Out Facebook page, and I posted my little Mia culpa or whatever, you know, the, the acknowledgement of my mistake on the Facebook page, and... I don't know if Russ wants me uh, saying this, but he said, he's pretty much said how he noticed the mistake right away, but, you know, he kind of jokingly said he assumed that he was wrong because I think he he finds me uh, somewhat trustworthy, which hopefully I am. You know, as you can tell, I obsess over trying to get the truth out to guys, and and I place a lot of value on being uh, factually accurate. So I I said to him, like, half-jokingly, I'm like, don't doubt yourself, you know? (laughs) I, I was inadvertently off by centuries, you know? You were right. To be honest, re-uploading the YouTube version wasn't really any skin off my back because I had only uploaded the first version that contained the error maybe a couple of hours beforehand. And so I think the video only had like 23 views. But I have to admit, it did kind of sting a little when the audio version, the podcast episode, already had, uh, what was it, like... 180 something downloads on Podbean alone. And so it did kind of hurt because when you replace the audio file for an episode of a podcast on Podbean, it wipes out all the hits for that file. So even though everything else stays the same, the the keywords or tags, the description, the title, everything else stays the same. But if you replace the audio file, all of your hits get wiped out. So yeah, I, I had like 180 something hits and it went back down to zero. Uh, but I guess it was worth it in a way since I'm so obsessive about you know mistakes. It, it's worth having a corrected version of the episode up there. Back through the magic of editing again, I believe I get so sidetracked here that I never 
finish talking about that anecdote involving my friend uh, Crocodoc, a.k.a. Humorbot from Twitter. So he said on the YouTube version how he basically agreed with everything I said in the episode, except he thought I got the part about witches um, being dunked in water because of some superstition about witches rejecting baptismal waters uh, wrong. And he said something about how it's actually because witches were thought to be made of wood. And I was already feeling so dejected and self-conscious about making mistakes. My heart kind of sank. I'm like, oh shit, did I get something wrong again? And I'm like, wait, uh, that's a joke from the Holy Grail, isn't it? I've never heard it outside of that. I know medieval people could be pretty damn superstitious, but they didn't actually think <laughs> that witches and ducks were made of wood. So like an idiot, just to be sure, I'm, I'm searching all over the internet just to make sure that Monty Python didn't get that joke from some actual bizarre folk belief. But no, I, I think that's just the uh, the Holy Grail. And that was just Crocodile's dry sense of humor, and he was having a little fun with me. But I don't mind. That's actually part of our friendship. We both have a rather inappropriate or irreverent sense of humor, and we're always going back and forth trying to one-up each other by seeing who can say the most crazier over-the-top stuff. Not that what Crocodile said was crazier over-the-top. It was actually one of his more subtle jokes, which is why I think I almost fell for it. You know, for a skeptic, I'm pretty damn gullible. I, I, I'm proving that time after time. But anyway, back to me. But other than that, I was, and I usually don't say I'm proud of an episode, I was really proud of that episode, how much time and effort went into it. At first, I had like pages and pages of notes, uh, both you know on paper, on my computer. Wasn't sure how the hell I was going to be able to comb through all the notes and make sense of things and, and put everything in the right chronological order. But somehow I managed to do it. Um, and that damn little mistake at the beginning, but oh well. And for those of you who support me on Patreon, hey, at least you know I care. I take the... Uh, podcast very seriously you know um i'm, I'm trying my best and, and i i do really care about the content that you're supporting uh with your money um every month and i think early on in the history of the podcast and uh, i think it was in one of the itunes reviews and it really stuck with me someone was talking about how they liked the show and that one of the things they liked about the show is that even when i make a mistake I correct it as soon as possible. And um, that stuck with me. And I think even if I had never read that review, I, I would still hold the same philosophy. I would see it as very important to correct a mistake. But it just kind of resonated with me or drove the idea home even more when someone complimented me on the fact that, you know, basically saying you can, you can trust me, hopefully, that even if I make a mistake... I will correct it. You know, speaking of inversions, it kind of reminds me of, uh, I think it was in a History Channel documentary about the seven deadly sins, where they were talking about the Inferno or Divine Comedy, and they inverted Dante's name. They referred to Dante Alighieri as Alighieri Dante. And I remember kind of, you know, looking down my nose and shaking my head like, oh, how could you make that mistake? And then I inverted the numbers and the dates of the Salem witch trial. So happens to uh, the best of us, I reckon. 
Not saying I'm the best of us, but happens to us all. I have to say, I had a lot of fun making the YouTube version because I love medieval art. And I really, I mean, I really do. I love the kind of exquisite, exceptional art of the Renaissance. You know, the art that was influenced by the art of the classical world, of the Greco-Roman world. You know, the amazing sculptures, the, the realistic paintings, you know, the, the works of Michelangelo and uh, Da Vinci, Botticelli, uh, people like that. I do love all that art, too, but I've always loved the kind of more crude or simplistic art of the Middle Ages. And I've I have friends who've told me that they dislike medieval art because it's so kind of awkward or, or crude looking or, you know, kind of too simplistic or too two-dimensional. Um, and I actually like it for those reasons. And it's kind of like I, I like Egyptian tomb art. And like, I like the weird kind of two-dimensional look of the characters. And I like the same thing about medieval art, how sometimes you'll even see figures with both eyes on one side of the head. Uh, kind of reminds me of what you'd see later with uh, Picasso's more abstract stuff. But um, yeah, I love weird, lurid medieval art, uh, old woodcuts and stuff like that, especially woodcuts that deal with uh, the devil or demonology or, you know, dance macabre, uh, the Black Plague, stuff like that. So I had a lot of fun choosing images for the video version, all these old kind of creepy uh woodcuts and things like that. I knew there was something uh, else I wanted to talk about in, in regard to the topic of the witch trials. And I'm actually, uh, I'm a fan of the TV show Salem. And I don't know if it's an exception or if as I mature, uh, as I get older, I'm just, I, I can't seem to be bothered to care as much about historical accuracy and the dramas I, I watch. But when I was younger, historical inaccuracies in movies and TV used to drive me crazy. And I used to think to myself kind of indignantly, you know, why not tell the real story? Because, and I still feel this way to some degree, just, you know, tell the original story and present it in an interesting way. The, the material is probably already compelling. Why do you have to kind of quote unquote lie and make characters do things that they didn't do, change certain facts and, uh, you know, and add events and fabricate plot elements that conflict with the historical record or with historical accounts. I can even remember, I think it was uh, with Braveheart. There was a, a ton of crap that was wrong with Braveheart. I don't think people of that period in Scotland would have worn that Celtic woad, that war paint. Uh, there's surviving portraits or images of William Wallace. I don't think he had that Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome hair. Maybe Mel Gibson digs that hairstyle. Um, I think in the movie, the Battle of Stirling Bridge didn't even happen at a bridge. Uh, there was a bunch of stuff like that. And yet I still really liked Braveheart too. I, I thought it was really emotional and moving. Um, but I remember the historical inaccuracies used to drive me crazy. And the TV show Salem is rife with historical inaccuracies. 
it's essentially a bastardization of history. Um, it has very little in common with the um, the actual accounts uh, of the uh, the Salem witch trials. They pretty much just borrow, you know, the place names and uh, the names of the um, individuals, etc. I think here and there there'll be a nod to history, etc. But and of course, the biggest difference would probably be that in the TV show Salem, um, witchcraft is a reality within the narrative, uh, within that world. And I found that an interesting conflict, you know, with the um, with the TV series. The way the TV series starts out, they make you feel for these characters who are being accused of witchcraft. And you feel for them because you know witchcraft is in a reality. You know these are innocent people who are being railroaded. And you can kind of get a feel of what must be like to be a sane person in an insane society uh, that's kind of, you know, steeped in superstition. But then the show introduces witchcraft as a reality. So it kind of confuses things a bit. And yet still, I, I like the show. It's just kind of an interesting and entertaining watch. I like the feel and mood of the show. I like the actors, portrayals, etc. And back on the uh, witch cake thing, it's kind of funny how in actual history, Mary Sibley is just a fleeting name. She had very little to do with the events of Salem, uh, 1692. I almost said 1962 uh, again. Something's wrong with the old noggin. Maybe I need like one more car accident to knock my head around and uh, something will uh, land back in place. Kidding. If I wasn't a skeptic, I'd say fingers crossed. I've been enough car accidents for one lifetime. But yeah, basically Mary Sibley's role in the actual events was she, as I spoke about in the documentary, is that she approached Tichuba, and there's another funny name, and instructed Tichuba and her husband, John Indian, another funny name, on how to make a um, so-called witch cake. And she was reprimanded by Reverend Samuel Paris. And it was thought by the Puritans that even white magic was bad magic. Even this kind of, you know, existing kind of folk magic that people tended to use. But Mary Sibley wasn't regarded as a witch. Uh, she... Although she had been strongly admonished by uh, Reverend Paris, she, as far as I know, wasn't imprisoned, uh, wasn't was never executed. She basically just stood in front of the congregation and apologized for her mistake and tried to express that she intended no malice and she was just trying to help. And she was basically forgiven her standing within the church was restored because it had been uh, her uh, uh, privileges, her ability to commune with the church, I think, had been temporarily revoked. You know, I can't believe it. Before editing, I'm already like 40 minutes into this, which is like twice as long as that documentary episode. Back through the magic of editing. Did I just say documentary by accident? Maybe at some point I'll make a documentary about my chihuahua. But anyway... So you can see why I'm talking about how the documentary episodes are more streamlined. And these stream of consciousness episodes, these unscripted ones, really tend to eat up time. 
So yeah, definitely no time for news stories. Um, so I'm probably gonna call call it quits. The next episode, I think it was originally going to be a documentary on The Exorcist, and you might be asking, you know, why is a show that is aimed predominantly at atheists and agnostics going to do an episode on some old horror movie? Well, the movie had a big impact on my life. I saw it probably when I shouldn't have, when I was you know, too young, just a little kid, and um, kind of scarred me for a, a long time. And also, it's in keeping with um, the season, you know, Halloween's coming up. And also, I mean, the subject matter, demonic possession, it does kind of fall into the wheelhouse of religion. So, uh, originally, I was going to do a documentary on it. But I think I'll just do a kind of off-the-cuff stream of consciousness thing where I just work without a net, talk about my take on The Exorcist, tell some personal anecdotes, and also kind of give my review of the new Exorcist TV series. You know, because it's funny, um, you know, when I was growing up, I had kind of a love-hate relationship with The Exorcist. I resented how much of a negative impact the movie had on me, how it basically scared the hell out of me and gave me nightmares for years. But at the same time, I thought it was such a well-made movie that I almost felt protective of its legacy and resented the kind of, you know, the shitty half-assed sequels, etc. But anyway, yeah, I'll call it quits. Yeah, you guys know the drill, Facebook, uh, Twitter. Please check out the YouTube channel. If you do, please comment, subscribe, like, etc. You can review the show on iTunes. Um, you can also subscribe through iTunes, obviously. If you want to support the show monetarily, you can do so by using the PayPal widget, the bottom of the Podbean page, yada yada, alliteration. Um, or you can go to patreon.com slash doubt and support the show on a monthly basis for as little as 99 cents. And every once in a while, I'll upload exclusive content for the Patreon supporters. So far, it's basically been me reading H.P. Uh, Lovecraft stories. So, uh, and I've been thinking, I don't know if I'll do it, but I thought about doing a series called <laughs> Embarrassing Tales, whereas Patreon bonus content, I talk about kind of personal stuff from my uh, my own life's journey, you know, over the years, um, from childhood onward. Uh, we'll see what happens. But uh, okay, guys, thanks for listening to me uh, vent about my uh, mistake needed to get that off my chest. And I hope you enjoyed the rest of the uh, meandering episode. Until next week, thanks for listening. <laughs>